This DMSG podcast episode is brought to you by the Medical Group Management Association, where they are advancing the business of healthcare today for a better tomorrow. To learn how you can make the world a better place, visit us at www.mgma.com. Welcome to the DMSG Healthcare Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Hadley, with the Denver Medical Study Group. Based in Colorado, we're going into our 16th year with over 1,350 members in 29 states. Our educational events include DMSG webinars, healthcare podcasts, and in-person meetings. I'm excited today to visit with Dave Gans, recently retired from Medical Group Management Association, as the Senior Fellow of Industry Affairs. He continues to volunteer for the association as an educational speaker and authors the Data Mine column for the MGMA Connection, the association's quarterly newsletter. Dave, would you tell our listeners a little about yourself and your background? Thank you, Chris. Uh, well, first, that I'm very extremely pleased to have the opportunity today to be part of Chris's podcast. And part of it is because uh, in my responsibilities at the Medical Group Management Association for five or six years, I conduct podcasts of my own where I interviewed healthcare professionals to under, better understand what is happening around us in our healthcare system. So it's very interesting to sit on the other side of the interview line, so to speak. I'll bet. Uh, yeah. Now, <laughs> Uh, for my other background is that I uh, re retired two years ago from the uh, Medical Group Management Association after a 42-year career. Uh, after graduate school, I was fortunate to have the opportunity to work for, for MGMA in their Center for Research as a project manager that looked at research grants that had a practical application, such as developing a chart of accounts for medical practices, or better understanding why, how medical groups are financed, or looking at electronic health records and their benefits, as well as aspects of patient safety. Uh, as I progressed in my career, I had a number of different job opportunities to include being vice president for innovation and research for MGMA. And when I began to more phase down my MGMA involvement, I went to part-time and when, uh, and was uh, noted as being a senior fellow for industry affairs and continued to do the th aspects of my job I enjoy the most, speaking and writing, and still being involved in some health policy research. And as I said, now I'm fully retired. I still volunteer as a life member and a life fellow in MGMA and the American College of Medical Practice Executives. And I still continue to write their quarter, a column in the quarterly magazine called The Data Mine. And that is actually the topic of what uh, I was involved with Chris Hadley and Dana Jacoby in December when we did a presentation that looked at the changes that are, that physician practices are having to face in our healthcare system, and uh, some of their alternatives of what can they do to exist in this upcoming environment. 
You know, Dave, I, I uh, really enjoyed, as did our attendees of that December meeting, to hear what you and Dana had to say. There's a lot going on. You you have uh, written a couple of articles, I believe, squeezed how practices are being crushed by higher costs and static payments, and running on empty, the crisis of continually having to do more with less. Would you give us an overview of what you're talking about in these articles? Okay. Well, the reality is that healthcare costs too much. <laughs> All right. And patients and insurers and government entities are looking to reduce how much they have to pay for healthcare. Now, so uh, in this process, uh, we have to understand that Medicare and Medicaid payments, which are the the federal and state managed healthcare insurance programs to uh, that they pay physicians and hospitals uh, with little or no input from the hospitals or physicians themselves. So in other words, physicians are not setting the, their, uh, the amount that they're going to receive from government entities. And of course, Medicare and Medicaid is a very sizable percentage in some practices, almost 50% or some, in some specialties, even more of the physician's practice's income comes from Medicare. Um, of course, Medicaid is a state-managed program uh, for the uh, underinsured and people who have low incomes. And Medicaid payments are typically even less than Medicare. Uh, and many physician practices, especially those that are part of health systems, that they have a Medicaid population that is very similar to uh, what to their overall inpatient population. So they may have a high percentage of Medicaid, again, without being able to set the costs. Now, commercial insurers, uh, you know, physicians and hospitals can negotiate their payments. But the problem comes if you're a smaller organization, you don't have clout. In other words, what negotiating leverage does a family medicine practice have in a large in a large city? Virtually none. So, uh, in other words, what we've observed has been that the amount that doctors are paid for a service is relatively static. Right now, at the same time, operating costs for a practice are going up. I mean, as a consumer, when I go to the grocery store, my costs are more. <laughs> If I go to the gas station, currently, unfortunately, in Colorado, our prices have gone down some, but we're still paying more for the things that we use on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, you know, now in a medical doc, medical practice, you're further squeezed, which is the title of the first uh, article I wrote, between higher cost and static payment. So. Uh, you're, you know, you're, you're in a very difficult position. Now, just one other minor aspect is that uh, patients are oftentimes driven to what doctor they're going to see, not necessarily by the quality of care the patients are receiving, but by the insurance contract they have, which has a impaneled set of doctors, or patient convenience. So this adds further problems to a practice because higher costs, static payment, and not, not necessarily having an unlimited number of patients to see. So you're, many practices are in a very serious problem. 
So what we see is, and let's just look at one aspect, and that is Medicare. All right. Mm-hmm. Now, yeah. Medicare. Uh, okay, I mentioned earlier about Medicare having a sizable portion of a practice's, uh, you know, revenue comes from Medicare. Okay, uh, among private practice doctors, about forty percent of their of of doctors in multi-specialty groups, which is those practices that have a mix of specialties, primary care, internal medicine subspecialties, surgery, and the like, that Medicare reps about, represents about 40% of their uh, of their revenue, and Medicaid, just ab- about 6%. Now, among hospital-owned practices, those are part of health systems, Medicare has about the same percentage, about 37%. But Medicaid is almost almost 20% of their income. So this tells you the problem of having government uh, uh, reimbursement programs. Now, this by itself would be a potential problem. But what has also happened is that Medicare payment is decreasing uh, over the years. Now, you have to this is a we get into the weeds here so i'm trying to be very very broad scope <laughs> that medicare uh, has a medicare physician fee schedule and that fee schedule consists of a relative value scale where every procedure that a doctor will perform has a weighted value that is relative to every other procedure an office visit has a as a low value uh you know, a heart surgery has a high value but they're relative to each other. But the conversion factor is what determines how much the doctor gets paid once you know the relative value weight of the procedure. In 2020, in other words, five years ago, uh, the conversion factor was $36.09. Okay. Last year, 2023, it had decreased to $33.89. And this year, 2024, Medicare re- reduce this over almost 4%. We're now doctors are now being paid $32.74 per relative value unit. So this has occurred, you know, even though costs are going up. So doctor this is and of course Medicare is only dealing with those patients at Medicare uh, you know, who are Medicare beneficiaries. However, commercial insurers they be, they benchmark their payment levels around Medicare. Because as Medicare goes up for procedure, you can almost be sure that a commercial insurer is going to pay, see that that pay is going to increase their payment for that as well. Oh, now that you know, the commercial insurers are independent, of course they set their own prices. But as Medicare leads the leads the country in this and the number of beneficiaries it insures, commercial insurers just watch what's happening and that's just part of that mix of payment that they use to determine how much is fair compensation for a doctor when of course the doctors if they don't have clout to negotiate it's a take it or leave it situation with commercial insurers you know dave uh a, a question that comes up is why do hospital owned groups only report <laughs> half of their staff costs and substantially lower operating costs compared to physician-owned multi-specialty practices. Well, you know, Chris, very good question, and that is uh, that, of course, uh, looking at it, the big picture, you realize, oh, we have practices of all different types and specialties, 
We have practices that are both independent. We have practices that are part of health systems. We have some practices that are now owned by other entities, such as uh, the insurance, you know, basically insurance companies uh, that they have their own practices. And there's also a lot of doctors who are part of uh, of practices that have relationships to major industry. You know, uh, you know, would, the obvious would be your occupational medicine practices, but many have also uh, larger uh, uh, manufacturers also have on-site healthcare. So anyway, so just let's just looking at doctors who practice independently, and those are part of health systems, and you realize they got very different patterns of expenses, and even and also revenue as well. And as you said, uh, if you're part of a health system. Uh, your 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 revenue your expenses may often be almost half that of a private practice, and uh, the first observation says you you think as well there must be something else here, and of course it becomes very obvious when you look at the practice. For example, uh, the practice is a, a part of a health system, so the health system says we're going to have centralized management for certain aspects. And in doing so, they're getting eliciting economies of scale and the opportunity to have greater expertise. A great example would be an electronic health record. There's one electronic health record for the health system. There's, and therefore, much of that electronic health record cost is paid for at the health system level and doesn't appear on the financial books of its uh, physician's uh, subsidiary. The same thing happens with all human resources, a lot of management aspects. Oftentimes, even centralized billing is done at the at at a, at a centralized billing uh, department and not in the doctor's office. You know, so therefore those costs don't appear in the books. Now, the other thing that happens is revenues from ancillary services. Okay, uh, don't appear on the practices books because these are also centralized that if a patient needs radiology or lab tests, that they will be performed in the central lab or the, re, or the radiology that's part of the health system. And the expenses of that expensive equipment don't appear on the, on the practices financial sta uh, statements, they appear on the health system statements. So the revenues associated with ancillary services, which can be sizable, don't appear on the practices of uh, financial statements. So you see very different patterns. Now, within health systems, uh, own practices, that there are some practices more efficient than others. And you can see that very obviously when you look at the financial book, uh, information. The same for uh, independent practices, that they, are, they have their own, their own financial structure and they need to be compared in a with other like practices who have a similar ownership situation and similar services. You know, David, uh, one of the things that uh, you talked about at our uh, DMSG winter meeting in December uh, was related to the statistics showing the percentage change in production in hospital-owned practices and how they different differed from physician-owned practices in regard to the rise and and decline in production, particularly during COVID. Is yeah. there a reason behind this difference? <laughs> oh, very definitely. And again, if you 
uh, looking within ownership categories that you see a very different pattern uh, of the practices that are part of health systems versus those that are uh, that are in a independent practice. Now, at this at the same time we're looking at this, there are some general patterns as well. So the overall pattern said that during COVID, uh, practices uh, saw a substantial decrease, most practices saw a substantial decrease in services. All right, now this is especially true for referral specialists. Now, uh, those practices that were part of a health system, they had a, a, another problem, and that was as patients, uh, because of uh, the importance of social distancing and trying to minimize contact to avoid the uh, spread of, of, of the disease, since it was respiratory-based, that many practices literally shut down. Now, a good example would be uh, practices that dealt with uh, with elective procedures as a dominant aspect of the practice. The elective procedures are almost all canceled during the, especially the earlier par- portions of COVID in 2020, uh, be, when you know prior to the uh, COVID vaccinations being available late in 2020 and beginning in 2021 for the general population. But doc, and especially in hospital systems, many health systems had an overwhelming demand for inpatient services. So they, so the health health system redirected its staff and from ambulatory care clinical situations to being inpatient services, and closed almost all of its uh, uh, elective procedures and many of its outpatient clinics in order to redirect staff and redirect resources to care for the bulk of patients, which were inpatients due to COVID. So we see looking overall a uh, that if I went back, and this is one of the slides I used at my, uh, in the program, is that uh, the amount of encounters and work units that were performed uh, in uh, and inpatient sir, and, and uh, practices, multi-specialty groups that are part of health systems, it, they went down 20%, almost 20%, it was 17.4% between 2019 and, tw- and during 2020. Now, they rebounded in 2021 by with a 10% increase from that low point. So what occurred is that... Uh, you know, that the number of encounters, number of work units or RVUs that were performed had a substantial dip during COVID and then rebounded uh, in 2020, 2021. Now in 2022, the next year, there were uh, that work production leveled off some, but in health systems own practices, it actually dropped back down some, sort of a rebound effect where uh, the practice, the patients saw a uh, you know a substantial need to see their doctor, and then after uh, the, that initial uh, surge of of services that occurred in 2021, uh, many many patients you know did not need services. So 2022 saw a, re- a reduction among private practices. Uh, they saw the same thing. They saw a 20 percent reduction in uh, in their t- uh, total RVUs. 
and then rebounded up to the equal levels what happened prior to the pandemic and then leveling off. So uh, we can see that the pandemic had a substantial and serious effect on doctors of all types. And many practices had severe economic problems because of the reduction of revenue that occurred as they were no longer seeing patients. And that's causing further shakeout in our industry. You know, that that reminds me of uh, a question that uh, uh, we have talked about, and that is, how can practices prepare for the future of these rising costs and lower payments? What what are your thoughts on potential solutions to this crisis? Okay. Well, it first is, uh, it is a crisis, but it's also our environment uh, that our our situation of static revenue and increased costs are something we're going to have to deal with in the future, right? So we can also look back and say practices, both whether part of a health system or if you're part of a independent that you you live in the same environment so we're seeing a similar immediate response that what practices have all realized that uh that they need to provide more services at the essentially about at the same cost as possible so one aspect has been to increase the number of advanced practice providers they have in the practice all right and this means you're going to have and and, and many of our listeners probably have observed that there are nurse practitioners and physician's assistants, uh, more, more, they're going to see them more frequently in the practice as the doctors looked at how do they optimize their time to see the patients that may have higher acuity issues and, and have advanced practice providers uh, seeing their patients as well. Uh, so that, that is able to provide a a equivalent service for lower costs because advanced practice providers' compensation levels are less. So what we've seen has been an increase. I actually have some uh, the well, the the presentation I did in December uh, that in the last five years we've seen about a, almost a twenty percent increase in the number of advanced practice providers per per physician. In, the, in both hospital-owned practices and those that are physician-owned. Okay. Now, what is also very interesting, and this is part of that aspect of being squeezed, is that even though the number of advanced practice providers has increased as a ratio to doctors, the staff have not. So we see the support staff for the practice, the, the clinical, the business office staff hasn't cha- has not changed uh, you know, hardly at all, and that, and even though they're processing more bills and more contracts, uh, the receptionist staff has not changed. Essentially, the clinical staff, the nursing staff, has not changed. So many practices report what they have is, you know, uh, they're having to do more with less. So that has been one solution: is having your staff be more efficient, work harder, and you know, and, you know, while you're seeing more patients. Now, of course, this has an uh, unintended side, uh, consequence of burnout where many staff and sure. many physicians and as other providers are just worn out from having to do more with less resources. 
Okay. Now, fortunately, there is some other opportunities that many practices are, are, are realizing. There are some technology opportunities uh, that electronic health records have for years have had the promise of being more efficient. Well, some organizations are, are, are recognizing by changing their processes to take better advantage of technology, whether it's an electronic health record or other technologies uh, that they may bring in into the practice to enhance communications, for example, that they can actually be more efficient. Okay? Uh, we're also seeing many practices utilizing technologies such as uh, patient appointment scheduling. You don't always have to talk to a receptionist to schedule an appointment. That many uh, electronic health record systems have appointment scheduling built in that allows a patient very easily to uh, to schedule their own appointments. And that, of course, that can save receptionist time. Uh, also, uh, many, uh, you know, many systems have, uh, you know, uh, automatic, you know, automatic bill paying built in where you can, patients can pay their bills electronically and therefore you don't have to process a, 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 a patient payment to the same extent as they, as a practice would if they received a hard copy check, for example, or worst case, right. cash paid at the receptionist. So okay. practices have tried to say, how can they be more efficient? Are there opportunities with technology? even though there may be an a upfront cost, if we can save, be more efficient and lower our operating costs. So this is what many practices are trying to do. You know, Dave, we uh, have not had an opportunity to talk about this particular item, but I saw just yesterday, I guess it was, that health systems are looking at purchasing dental practices. Is that something that medical groups can consider? Well, all right. Um, <laughs> I'm 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 smiling. <laughs> you, you, you can't tell, and uh, that uh, when I first came to MGMA Medical Group Management Association, uh, we actually had some work with the American Dental Association at that time. So this is this is you know under the the rubric of there's nothing new under the sun <laughs> things come back all right now dental care is health care obviously uh-huh. and uh now in the uh when health maintenance organizations hmos first came into large uh portions of health care in the late in the 1980s and 1990s uh many practices looked at the at total health services and included dental services as part of part of their healthcare programs. Um, now, now that's diverged over time, and it looks and it would not be surprised it may be returning. Uh, now, uh, most insur- most health insurance companies do not cover dental services today. Now, some do. For example, Medicaid covers dental many dental services that Medicare does not. Uh, mm-hmm. Some other insurers also have recognized that dental care has a uh, that has a direct relationship to good health care because if people have dental problems they're not eating well or it may actually cause infection that that causes substantial problems elsewhere in the, in the body so dental mm-hmm. it, it, dental services 
may be an option for many health systems. Uh, one of the problems that they may experience, though, is dental dental services have very high operating overhead. And you have to think about if anyone has had a personal visit to the dentist, the, the, the economics of a dental practice are very different than the economics of a physician group, even though the billing, the administrative and billing functions may be fairly similar. Dental practices are much more patient pay in today's environment, and the services typically have a lower reimbursement level than equivalent uh, than equivalent time being spent in a doctor's office. So the economics are very different. Now, it's not that it can't be very successful and provide very good services to a practice's patients. So I think that's something many practices could explore. But it's they have to realize this is a very different portion of healthcare than they may experience in the past. It's going to be interesting, isn't it, to watch that? Uh, you know, we have time for one more question, uh, but I also want to mention that uh, one of the things that we could probably spend an entire podcast interview on is the dynamics of Medicare Advantage. And so we may want to uh, do that as a separate podcast interview uh, in the near future, Dave, if you're available. <laughs> Oh, I would. I'm smiling again. I would find that interesting because Medicare Advantage, uh, you know, is a very good program for many patients and many providers. Uh, it's also an extraordinarily good program for insurers because they have found Medicare Advantage. If they can have a good marketing program and good selection of patients, to be quite profitable. So that's something would be good to discuss. Yeah, yeah, that would be a good one. Dave, is there anything else that you'd like to share with our listeners as we close our interview today? Maybe what I'd like to do is close the interview with the basically the closing I used in my portion of the presentation. And it and it really said, who is going to see, succeed in the future? We've got tremendous problems facing practices and tremendous opportunities as well. And so there are two quotes I want to give. One is by Charles Darwin. That, that people will recognize he is the scientist in the 18th century who came up with the concept of, evolu of how animals and plants evolved for their environment. And his quote is that it's not the strongest of the species that survive, nor the most intelligent, but the ones most responsive to change. And I think that is a very good philosophy for many administrators and and providers and practitioners that they have to be able to respond to change to accept new technologies for their opportunities look at new way, new ways of providing services and changing how they how they how they provide service and focus on the patient you know so so being responsive to change is critical now then there's another quote and this is, tells us what's happening in our environment, and that's by Ed Deming. And uh, Deming, in the 1980s, was noted as being uh, a health researcher and physician who focused on quality of care. So he's the father of quality of care measurement and analysis. So how can we provide better quality services to our patients? And his quote is that it's not necessary to change. Survival is not mandatory. And we're seeing that in today's environment 
where many smaller practices are merging with larger ones. Many health systems are choosing to literally abandon hospitals in certain settings and convert them from inpatient services to maybe ambulatory care only or closing the hospital altogether. So survival is not mandatory, but you have to be responsive to change. Now, actually, there's a third quote I'll add, and that is by my, one of my favorite cartoonists, <laughs> Walt <laughs> Kelly. And Walt is the cartoonist who for years and years had a, car, a, a panel cartoon in the so-called comic section of the newspaper. But his cartoon was more political in nature because it concerned a and, – and our older listeners will remember Pogo. Pogo was a, an opossum in a swamp, the Okefenokee Swamp down in Florida. And he, but he would pontificate in various ways. Now, the most familiar quote uh, people have is when uh, when Pogo re- remarked on pollution, says, "We've met the enemy, and he is us." And looking at pollution and the like, well, he has another quote that had to do with the future. And, and this is what I think most medical groups and doctors and hospitals have to think about, is that Kelly's quote was, we're confronted with insurmountable opportunity. And I think that's what we have to look at. We've got great opportunities in the future. We can do some fabulous healthcare services, caring for our patients. And also, it can be a very good business for the doctors and their staffs and a great careers. But there's insurmountable problems in between, but maybe they're not insurmountable. They're just opportunities. Chris, thank you very much. (laughs) This has been fun. Dave, uh, it has been fun. And thank you for joining me today on our DMSG Healthcare podcast. It's always a pleasure to work with you. And I know our our listeners will learn a lot from our interview today. So uh, we wish you the best as you go into 2024. And I look forward to having you on again soon. Thank you very much. You bet. 